Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 40 through 49. Ezekiel 40, verses 40, sorry, 44 through 49. Ezekiel 40, verses 44 through 49. It says, on the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one at the side of the north gate facing south, and the other at the side of the south gate facing north. And he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, a square, and the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the jams of the vestibule, five cubits on either side, and the breadth of the gate was fourteen cubits, and the side walls of the gate were three cubits on either side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the breadth 12 cubits and people would go up to it by 10 steps and there were pillars beside the jams, one on either side. Now if you remember we ended last session with a brief look at the section of the temple area where the priests were to slaughter the sacrifices for the burnt offering, the guilt offering and the sin offering. Jump back to verse 39 of chapter 40. You see in verse 39, it says, and, and in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. Now, that was in the north gate of the inner. On your picture, you'll see there's the three gates. On the, there's one in the north, one in the east, one in the south. You have three gates on the inner court, north, east, and south. Those uh, tables for slaughter were in the north gate on the inner part of the uh, temple area. And... Tonight we see that this temple complex also has chambers for the priests to live in as they serve at the temple or the altar. Now we're going to look more closely at why there are certain roles for the Zadokites or Zadokites and certain roles for the Levites later on in our study. Not going to get there tonight, but you see referenced in this section that we're in that there were certain roles for the Levites and there's certain roles for the descendants of Zadok. And we'll get into that later in our study, just not tonight. We also, when we left off last, last week, we also had been looking closely at Hebrews chapter 10 to see some clues as to why there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So put a bookmark here back in Ezekiel. We'll come back to Ezekiel a little bit tonight. We're going to spend most of our time tonight looking at the rest of the scriptures to understand a little bit more clearly why there are going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to read to you again where we were last week, verses 1 through 18. And then we're going to take a little bit of time to kind of break it down and to start look for some, looking for some answers as to why there'll be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will we have been, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now in every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, or after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So let's go back to chapter 10 and look closely at verses 1 through 4. There are some things that we can pull out of verses 1 through 4. The first thing we see right there in verse 1 is that the law is but a shadow of Christ's sacrifice and therefore cannot take away sins. All right? The law was a shadow of Christ's sacrifice. It was, it was a picture of Christ's sacrifice, but not even close to the real thing, and it cannot take away sins. The law in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, never took away sins. Its whole purpose was to be, as you see there also, look at verse three, the end of verse 3, or the verse 3, but in these sacrifices there's a what of sins every year? It's a reminder, don't miss that. It's a reminder of sins, and it cannot clear the conscience of sinners. The law's purpose is to reveal sin and to expose it. Now this is going to be helpful for us to understand why there's sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom, because people have wrestled with that over the years. They say since Jesus came and He was the final sacrifice for sins, why are there going to need to be sacrifices anymore? Well, you remember if you were here with us last week, is it correct to say that Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin? Very good. Someone was listening last week. You can't say He was the final sacrifice for sin. He was the only sacrifice for sins. See, for years we've been saying, Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins. We've heard people say that over and over. He was never the final sacrifice for sins. He's the only sacrifice for sins. The sacrificial system had a purpose, and we're going to get to that tonight, and it, and it had actually more than one. But all along, the sacrificial system, and you're going to see some things tonight about the sacrificial system that may actually surprise you that God says about it. The sacrificial system was never intended to take away sins. So we, when we wrestle with this and we say, well, Jesus already took away sin, why are there going to be sacrifices? We think that somehow that's going to be tied to the removal of sin when it never did. It never did. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Jesus has been the only sacrifice for sin that has ever been offered. All right? But there was a reason why the sacrificial system was put in place by God. And we're going to look at some of those reasons tonight. But we got to, first of all, keep in mind, one of the reasons the law was given to us and the sacrifice, sacrificial system was given was to reveal sin and to expose it. So go with me to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 24. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's the purpose of the law? Knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. That's very, very clear. The purpose of the law was to show you your sin. Yet isn't it amazing how many people that even claim to be Christian still think that their goodness is going to get them some points with God? 
It's amazing to me how many people I talk to in churches who say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to be a good person, as if their goodness is tied into their salvation. Some of you were probably raised in denominations that taught that Jesus did his part, but you have to do your part and you have to meet sacrificial uh, uh, or penance or do rituals in order to be right and to receive grace or be under a state of grace. Listen, folks, it's been all done by Jesus once for all. He's made perfect forever, we saw in Hebrews chapter 10, those of us who are being sanctified. I want you to hear this. The purpose of the law is simply to reveal sin. Now, I'm gonna, the scripture will tell us a little bit more how it does that and why, but keep reading in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right? The law can never make anybody right, but what it does is reveal sin. And once you realize you have this sin problem, now the righteousness that has always been through faith in Jesus Christ is being revealed. The law and prophets point to it. And that's how we get our righteousness, through faith alone in what Jesus did. Go to Romans chapter 7, though, and let's see how the law actually reveals sin. In Romans chapter 7, look at verses 7 through 13. Paul says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin it lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the command and and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Put a bookmark here, and we're going to come right back to it, but jump over to 1 Corinthians 15. There's something I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 56. In the middle of that whole section where Paul talks about our resurrected bodies and uh, and what things are going to be like, and he talks at the end about how we're all going to be changed and all this, look at verse 56 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, The sting of death is sin... And the power of sin, what fuels sin, is what? Isn't that interesting? What fuels sin is the law. And that's what Paul was talking about here in Romans 7. He said, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said don't covet. And then it energized that sin that's in me. And all of a sudden, I coveted like you wouldn't believe. See, the law reveals sin... Because sin is there, and the law is holy and right and good. But God knows that when he says, thou shalt not, what will be our natural sinful response? (laughs) Thou shalt. I want to. 
Like I've heard me say before, if you're walking down the sidewalk, you wouldn't even think about stepping on someone's lawn unless they had all these signs that said, keep off my grass. And then all of a sudden, what do you want to do now? You want to step on the grass. Folks, let me just say to you, the law actually invigorates, if you will, the sin that's in us. It brings it to life. Well, let me use God's word in Romans chapter 5. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 20 and 21. I'm going to ask you a question, by the way, before I, we read this. Does God want us to sin more? Well, let me back it up. Does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? Some are saying less. Some are saying more. Yes. God wants sinful people, lost people, to sin more. You say, what in the world? How could you say such a thing? Well, the Bible says it. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law was added so that people would sin more. Actually, we don't have time to break down all of uh, Paul's treatise here, but he's been dealing from chapter 1 with the sinfulness of mankind. He's been dealing with the fact that Jews and Gentiles are alike or under sin. Whether they heard the law of God, God revealed his law to the Gentiles through a law that he wrote in their hearts and their consciences convicting them. And all the way through, he's been laying this out. And what he says here is, is that actually the law was added so that the sin that's already there would come to life. Because what fuels sin? The law. Oh, by the way, you parents that think that you're going to turn your kids into righteous little girls and boys by being legalistic and keeping them under the rules and they're going to behave, guess, what's, guess what you're fueling? You're fueling sin. And we look back over the years and we've seen those type of parents that have been just law, law, law parents have raised rebellious children, have they not? Thank God for him helping us to realize that it's still we teach what's right and true and we expect behavior that's appropriate, but we work more on getting to their hearts than it was the rules because the law fuels sin. Josh McDowell years ago said rules without relationship equals rebellion. And so I want you to see the law's purpose, the sacrificial system was to reveal sin. It was never to take away sin. It simply was a daily reminder, a yearly reminder of sin. And its purpose was to point out sin. And it never, ever took away sin. So with that in mind, I'm not going to get to our answer yet tonight. But we will get to it tonight, but not yet. Don't get freaked out over the fact that there's a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom because Jesus already took care of sin. Oh, the law never took care of sin. What were its, what were its main purposes? To reveal sin was to be a picture of Christ's sacrifice and to reveal sin within us. Now we've even seen a little bit more. How it reveals sin in us is it brings it to life. Don't lose sight of the fact that in the millennial kingdom, there's still going to be sinful humans on this earth. That'll become more clear tonight. And they're going to need the sacrificial system. They're going to need that reminder. You'll see it in a little bit. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you here. Go to back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 5 through 13. Because I'm about to share with you something that Hebrews says here that a lot of people say, I never, ever thought about that. 
Never looked at it that way. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 5 through 13. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Who said that? Jesus said, Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Don't miss that. And then he goes on and says, I've come to do your will. When he said above, you neither desired, verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. He then added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, the second, the new covenant, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right? Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. I want you to see that all through the Old Testament, God kept telling the nation of Israel, I never wanted you to do these sacrifices in order to get right with me. I never wanted that. Jeremiah chapter 7, look at verses 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Go ahead. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Did you catch that? He said, when I called them out of Egypt, I didn't give them the sacrificial system right away. I never gave them that. I actually told them, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Walk with me. Just do what I say. Let me lead you. I just want to walk with you. Oh, what happened when they got into the wilderness, though, and Moses went up on the mountain to spend some time with God? What did the people do? They built an idol and started worshiping the same gods that they had in Egypt. And God had to show them his holiness and begin to set up the sacrificial system to teach them about holiness and unholiness, clean and unclean, righteous and unrighteous. But it never was the intention from the beginning. It was only after the rebellion with the golden calf that God set up all this stuff. He said, when I led you out of the nation, out of Egypt, I didn't give you those laws and sacrifices. I just said, I'm going to be your God. You might be my people and walk with me. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. And look at just one verse. Verse 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Go with me to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord? Now, before I go any further, for some of you who don't know about this passage, God in this chapter has held a courtroom scene. And he's the judge, but he's also prosecuting attorney. And he has just declared Israel guilty. This is their response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God responds, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is Old Testament, folks. All along, God said, I never wanted the sacrificial system for you to replace me, a relationship with me in the sacrificial system, to think you're okay because you did these sacrifices. He many a time said, you're doing all those sacrifices is a waste of time because I'm not hearing it because I'm dealing with your heart. You're going through the motions. But that was never what I wanted. I never, ever, ever wanted the sacrificial system to be how you thought that made you right with me. It never would make you right with me. That wasn't its purpose. Actually, its purpose is to point to how I'm going to make you right. And its purpose is to actually bring out that problem that you don't realize you have and bring it to life. Because the more you try to do right, guess what? The worse you're going to do. Oh, by the way, Christians who have been saved, who are now trying to live for the Lord, let me say something. The more you try to do right, the worse you're going to do. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live now, I live by faith in the one who died for me. I'm not even trying to live my life, Paul said. He said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I don't even judge myself anymore. I don't worry about anybody's judgment on me. I don't even judge myself. I don't know of anything against myself, he said. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. I'm going to leave that to the Lord to show me. His attitude was, I'm so trusted in the Lord that if there's sin, he'll show me. As I'm not going to sit around and examine myself to see how I'm doing. Some of us as Christians spend too much time checking ourselves how we're doing. Oh, and by the way, when we do, Satan loves to whisper in our ear. God says, look, I live there. If there's something, I'll tell you. Until then, relax. Go play. Enjoy your time with me. Go to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. Look at verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and in offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. By the way, who's talking here? Jesus. But look at what Jesus said. When we see it in Hebrews, but this is where it came from. Jesus said, You never delighted. In sacrifice and offering. Never. Go to Psalm 51. David finally got it. In Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, listen to verses 16 and 17. He said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Folks, all through the Old Testament, the Bible has shown us God never wanted the sacrificial system to be how people thought they could get right with him. And so for those of us who are bothered by the fact that the Bible clearly teaches us there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, I'm going to say this nicely, get over yourselves. Because it have never had anything to do with making people right before God. Why are they doing the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? Jesus already made us right with God. The sacrificial system never made people right with God. Oh, we're going to get to. Good question. Why are we going to do it? I actually 
I'm going to read you my notes. It'll be a good answer for you here. God was not saying that the sacrificial was never to be done. Don't forget Hebrews 10.8, the law demanded it. Okay? Don't hear me say that the sacrificial system never was to be done. The law demanded it. But he wanted their hearts, not their actions. So here's the question. And I'm going to read to you from my notes. Okay, you ready? So why did God give the sacrificial system? Why will it be again in the millennial kingdom? Hang on. That's all I wrote. We're not answering it yet. That's not fair, but I just told you I was going to read my notes. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew chapter 5. We've got to lay some more foundation before I answer the question. I just found this past week that Jesus told us that the law would be with us until the new heaven and the new earth. I'd never seen this before. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot going on here that he's talking. He's again, he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, right, the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never make it into heaven. What would be the natural reaction of everybody who had heard that from Jesus? Who in the world can make it then? Because in their mind, you could never be more righteous than the Pharisees. And that's the whole point. The law... Its purpose is choice. You can't do it. So he says, you want to be righteous before God? Go be more righteous than the Pharisees, and you can get into heaven. And if you're not more righteous than the Pharisees, you'll never get into heaven. And as they set out to become more righteous than the Pharisees, what's going to be the natural reaction? They're going to realize their failure, and they're going to then be ready for the good news. That you cannot be righteous. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. I remind you, when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus in Luke chapter 15, he says to him, he says, what must I do to inherit? Sorry, that's not chapter 15, but it says, he says, when he comes up to him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Now, don't answer too quick, because people always answer the wrong answer when they answer too quick. What was the first thing Jesus said to him when he came up and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I heard it. Very good. He said, keep the law. See, people always say, he said, go sell everything you have. No, no, no. That's the second thing he said. The first thing he said was, keep the law. Now, wait a minute. You and I know full well that the Bible clearly says that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Why does Jesus say to him, then go keep the law? What's the law's purpose, folks? To show you you can't do it. It actually even fuels the sin that's in you. It not only shows you you can't do it, it makes you want to do it more. It really Gives you a problem, doesn't it? That's why when he said to the woman, I don't condemn you, the one caught in the act of adultery, what did he say to her next? Go and sin no more. I bet you she tried. I mean, Jesus just gave her a fresh start. She was that minutes from death, and Jesus says, don't sin anymore. All right, I'm not going to sin. Has anybody ever said, I'm not going to do that ever again? How'd you do?
Jesus said here, though, listen closely again. He said, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Don't miss that. When does heaven and earth pass away? Before the millennial kingdom or after the millennial kingdom? Oh, so Jesus even told us the law is going to be in the, in the millennial kingdom. I had never seen that before. Oh, the law and the sacrificial system during the millennial kingdom will be necessary for the humans who will be living during that time. And scripture shows us that during the millennial kingdom, nations of people will be coming to Jerusalem to be taught the law of God. Don't take my word for it. Let's take a look at a couple. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, And when all these things come upon you, and the blessing and the, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and, return, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He'll gather you again from all the peoples, as promised the nation of Israel, where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will, your God will gather you, and from there He'll take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. All right, so this is our foundation. Remember, that he, God told him way, way back in Deuteronomy. At the very end, I'm going to gather you back from everywhere you've been scattered, and I'm going to circumcise your hearts. And you, remember the prophecies we've looked at earlier, that every Jew will know him. There won't be any need of a teacher saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. So the Jews are going to know the Lord. Go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth, what? The law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples will walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right? Now, keep reading. In that day, Declares the Lord, I'll assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. In, that, in the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So the nation of Israel is going to be regathered. The nation of Israel is going to know the Lord. And what are all the nations going to be coming to Jerusalem to hear? The law. To hear the word of God. Remember, Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, from this temple complex. And they're gonna, all the nations are going to come 
to be taught the law. Go to Zechariah chapter 8. Well, we'll deal with that later on. That's another whole study for another time. And I would get derailed trying to answer that question of where will we be. Zechariah chapter 8. No, it's a good question. I'm just wise enough not to chase it. Zechariah chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 23. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For behold, those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been by a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. For fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations, one of every tongue, shall take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Is that happening right now, by the way? They get all mad if we even try to put the embassy in Jerusalem. Oh, but the prophecy is very clear that in the last days this is going to happen. The end of the tribulation period, after all that stuff that Israel is going to go through for their purification, at the end of the tribulation period, God's going to regather the remnant, those that are left, and they're going to be a believing nation. And he's going to rebuild his temple. 
And there's going to be this temple complex that Ezekiel's been given this very specific instructions to how to build. And all the nations are going to be going up to Jerusalem to be taught the law of God. And they're going to be grabbing every Jew they see and saying, take us with you. We hear the Lord's with you. Folks, that's going to be an amazing day. The sacrificial system, though, has a purpose. So why will the sacrifices be necessary in the millennial kingdom? Here comes your answers now, all right? You've been patient, some of you. <laughs> the one reason is this, to point to Jesus' sacrificial death after his crucifixion, just like it did before his, 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 his crucifixion and resurrection, okay? Remember, beforehand, it was pointing to Jesus' sacrifice for our, our sins, correct? Afterwards, is a point back to it, just like your Lord's Supper. We talked about that last week. You take the Lord's Supper to remember what he's done. It points back to what he di did for us all the time. The memorial system and the sacrificial system, sorry, the sacrificial system will be a memorial of what he's done. That's one of the reasons, but there's way more than that. What's going to create the goodwill toward the Jews? The Spirit of God and all the stuff that he's put people through. You remember, the only ones that make it into the millennial kingdom, according to the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 and Joel chapter 3, uh, sorry, ch chapter 2, uh, is the fact that the only ones that are allowed to enter the millennial kingdom are the righteous Gentiles who actually took care of the Jews during the tribulation period. When it says, you gave me water, and you gave me something to eat, and you visited me in prison, You've done it to the least of these, my brothers. If you put together Matthew 25, and it is Joel chapter 3, you put it together, Matthew 25 and Joel chapter 3, you'll see that these brothers of mine is the people of Israel. Well, they, may they may not know Christ, but because of the fact that they believe the word of God enough to be pro-Israel during those days, those are the only ones that are going to be allowed to go into the kingdom. So they'll have already had a grain of pro-Israel, and of course, when Jesus comes back and the whole world's going to see him at the same time, you remember, when he comes back, those who are left, everyone's going to see them. And, of course, those who are unrighteous are going to be judged and sent to hell. And the righteous are going to enter the kingdom. They already know there's God and there's Jesus and all that. But then they're going to learn more. And God's going to use the sacrificial system as a part of that. There's another reason, though. Listen closely. Not only is this, the sacrificial system going to point to Jesus' sacrificial death after his crucifixion, like it did before. There's another reason that I think the scriptures are showing us it's for the same reason that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You ever think about why Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this, his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but it is, is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said not all of you are clean. Judas is still in the room. But don't miss this. We've been taught for years that Jesus was taking the role of a servant and teaching us to serve one another. But that's not what was going on. Does the Bible teach us to serve one another? Yes, lots of places teach it. But look closely. Jesus was teaching something much deeper than just serving one another. Because if what Jesus was teaching was service, Peter understood what he was doing. Because Peter said, I'm not going to let you serve me. Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You think it's service, dude. It's not. Deeper than that. Later you'll understand. And if you don't let me wash you, you got no part with me. Peter said, then wash the whole body. Jesus said, look, you've already been made clean. You still need, though, to have your feet washed. Don't miss that. Have you been made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ? Then why do we have to go through this sanctification process if we've already been made clean? Why are we still being sanctified if we're already clean, oh, do we lose our salvation? Ah, oh, we still sin. Oh, restore fellowship. You're getting close. Folks, go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 19 through 22 where we left off. We finished in verse 18 in our reading. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, because of everything we've just looked at in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. There's an inward cleansing, and there's an outward type of a cleansing that seems necessary, doesn't it? Your hearts have been made clean, and your bodies. Stick with me here. This is a little bit tricky, and I'm not sure everybody's going to get it, but that's between you and the Lord, and it doesn't mean you haven't gotten it because you don't understand. It's just the Lord will show you in time. A large part of the sacrificial system was the need of cleansing to clear the worshiper of contaminants so they could approach God. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 43. I told you we'd be back in Ezekiel a little bit. Go back to Ezekiel, but look at chapter 43. I'm going to read that to you again. A large part of the sacrificial system was tied to the need of cleansing to clear the worshiper of contaminants so they could approach God. In Ezekiel 43, look at verses 18 through 27. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to Le the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus shall you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. And you shall take the bull of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall make a male goat 
offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. And when you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as burnt offerings to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide a daily male goat for a sin offering. Also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Did you catch that? Before they could even offer the sacrifices on this altar, the altar had to go through a cleansing. Go to chapter 42 of Ezekiel. Go back to verses 13 and 14 in chapter 42. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers. Opposite the yard, sorry, are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put on the most holy, so they shall put the most holy offerings and the grain offering, the sin offering and the guilt offering. For the place is holy. Now when the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying their the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. In other words, there's a holiness of God that in order to just even be in His presence, the altar had to be cleansed before it could offer pure sacrifices. The garments they wear are holy, and if they go out into the outer court from the inner court, they had to take off the outer garments, leave them in there because they're holy, and they would then go out and they could mingle with the people. But before they could come back in, they got to put on these garments again to be able to go. There's a picture here we see all the way through the Old Testament as well that there are things that are clean and unclean. And even to be in the presence of holy God, there was a sacrificial system and a cleansing that had to happen so that they could even be in his presence. Are there going to be sinful people on the earth during this time? Yes. There's going to be humans, Gentiles and Jews, who are going to be born. Remember, all the Jews, they're going to be, at the end, they're going to be saved, but they're going to start making babies, and they're going to need to be cleansed, and they're going to need to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. And God is so holy. He's going to be there. He's so holy to even be in their presence because of the sin. There has to be a continual cleansing in order for him to even dwell in the midst of people who have sinned. All right, we're going to get to the, more of this deeper. So stick with me for tonight. We're just going to lay this. And in the same way, even though I have been made clean, like you said, Jim, to have that close fellowship with the Father, I need to go through a daily cleansing. I don't need another whole bath. I don't need to get saved again. I didn't lose my salvation. That's sealed and signed and delivered. I'm all secure that way. But in order to have a close walk with a holy God, I need to have my feet washed. What was Jesus teaching when he washed their feet? He was teaching sanctification. How does it when Moses was on the mountain, he said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground? You're looking at my notes. It's actually Exodus chapter 3. Go to Exodus chapter 3 where Bill's referring to. Bill, you led wonderful transition to where we're going. to Go to Exodus chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led the flock 
his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Then, of course, he said, I'm the God of your father and of Abraham and Isaac and so on. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. By the way, was this an angel? It was Jesus before he took on flesh. Remember we talked last week about the theophany? Every time a man fell before an angel, the angel would say, Get up, I'm a fellow servant just like you. Worship God only. But here Joshua falls at the feet of this angel, and he worships, and the angel doesn't tell him to get up. The angel says, Good, but now take the shoes off. Why? Because those shoes had been carrying contaminants, if you will. And you can't stand in my presence with contaminants. Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? They'd already been made clean through the word that he'd spoken to them. He had already given them righteousness because of their faith. When, Peter, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said all these different men. And he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. And I say, you're Peter now. You're that new creation. He'd been made clean, declared righteous by Jesus. Yet he still needed to have his feet washed so that he could enjoy the presence of a holy God. Will God leave you as a Christian if you sin? No. But can you grieve the Holy Spirit by which you've been sealed? Can you quench the Holy Spirit by which you've been sealed? Can you be as a Christian, even though you're saved, walking simply in the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit? Can you be someone who really is not enjoying the presence of the Holy God because of your sin? That's why we need to daily, daily allow the Spirit of God to show us if there be, don't, how am I doing and check myself? No, but there's nothing wrong with praying, Lord, as David did, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of everlasting and righteousness. Lord, if there's something that you want to bring to my mind, bring it to my mind. And I want to agree with you. That's what the word confess means, to agree, to say the same thing. I want to agree with you that it's right. And I, 1 John 1, 9. And if we say that we don't have sin, he goes on and says we lie. The truth's not in us. Folks, I want you to understand. We can get so caught up in the sacrificial system of the millennial kingdom, we miss the whole point. You need a daily cleansing, do you not? Maybe more than daily. 
so that you can enjoy the presence of the holy God who indwells you. And if we need, even though we've been made righteous, a daily cleansing so that we can enjoy the presence of the holy God who indwells us, confessing our sin, agreeing that he's right, forsaking our sin, repenting of our sin, turning from our sin, and walking with him and enjoying his presence, why should we be surprised that there would be a sacrificial system made in order to let those who don't even know him yet be able to be in his presence? There's way more to it. We're going to get to it as we continue on our study, as we finish the book of Ezekiel. But let me clarify something for some of you that will be very helpful. I have heard too many people teach on this and say this. Just like it was in the Old Testament, they're going to go back to the Levitical system. No. If you're faithful to study the scriptures, you're going to see that it's not the same. Listen closely. As we're going to see in our rest of our study, and whatever how long it takes us to get to chapter 48 and to finish it, the millennial system of sacrifices described by Ezekiel differs profoundly from the Aaronic system. It is not simply a reinstitution of Mosaic Judaism. Don't just assume that all the laws and everything like it was in the Old Testament is how it's going to be in the Millennial Kingdom. That's a mistake. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, uh, Things to Come, points out that there will be no Ark of the Covenant in this temple. There's not going to be any tables of the law. There'll be no cherubim, no mercy seat. There'll be no veil. There'll be no golden lampstand. There's not going to be the table of shoebread. By the way, does anybody have any idea why all those things that I just listed aren't going to be there? Because they all point to Jesus. He's going to be sitting there. The table of shoebread, the bread of life is going to be there. The lampstand, the light of the world, he's right there. The seven spirits of God indwelling him. I could go on. The law, he wrote it. He is the word. All right. All those things won't be necessary. So it's not going to be the old system brought back. But also there's more. Instead of a high priest, there's going to be a prince who has some royal or priestly powers. And he's going to be on duty. I believe it's David, as we've been looking at. But there is going to be a priest who's got royalty. He's not going to be the high priest, but he's going to have some royal and priestly powers. And he's going to be on duty. But he will be neither king nor high priest. The Levites will have fewer temple privileges than they did in the Old Testament, except for the sons of Zadok, who will serve as the priests at the altar. We'll get to that. I touched on that earlier. There's a difference between the Zadokian priests and the Levitical priests. The, the Zadokians come from Levi, but there's, there's a reason why those descendants of Zadok are the ones that are going to be serving at the altar, not the rest of Levi's descendants. The scripture tells us why. We'll get to that in a little bit. All right. Also, the, pre, the Feast of Pentecost is omitted when we get to the feasts that are going to be in the Millennial Kingdom. There's no Feast of Pentecost. As well as the Great Day of Atonement. When he lays out the feasts in the Millennial Kingdom, there's no Great Day of Atonement feast in the Millennial Kingdom. And the daily evening sacrifice will be gone. So it's not going to be exactly the same. So when you hear, as it was in the Old Testament, they're going to just continue it in the Millennial Kingdom? No, it's not. Are there going to be some carryovers? Yes. But the scripture is too specific for us to assume that they're just going to be the same. They're not. There's going to be reasons. We'll get into that in our study. But as you can tell, there's a whole lot more to see, is there not? 
But until then, meditate on what you heard tonight. I love you. We'll see you next week.